Have you ever heard someone who professes to be a believer say, uh, my faith is a private matter? You ever heard somebody say that? You ever have been around someone who doesn't like to talk about their faith openly and maybe, maybe they say things like that, my faith is a private matter, or hey, it's between me and the man upstairs? You ever heard someone use their personal privacy as justification for why they don't want to talk about God or attend a church or, heaven forbid, get involved in a church or serve their community or engage in any kind of activity whatsoever that might possibly identify them as a believer to others? You ever known someone who distinguishes themselves as a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, and yet there seems to be no sense of urgency or, or even much concern at all about sharing that gospel message with others? As if our single greatest purpose in this life is to look after ourselves, with anything above and beyond that just being superfluous, optional. Nice, maybe, but not a priority, and certainly no one else's business. I have. I've had those conversations. And yet that is wholly incompatible with the teachings of Christ. Of course, personal faith is required for salvation, yes, but that does not make our faith private in any way, shape, or form. In Matthew 10, 32 and 33, in a familiar passage, Jesus said, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Our faith was never intended by God to be kept private. And so we don't see the biblical writers praising other people for being able to keep their faith to themselves. On the contrary, we find just the opposite in Scripture. In one of his epistles, the Apostle Paul writes a letter to Philemon. He's a wealthy Christian living in the city of Colossae, and he had a church in his home. And the letter is intended not only for Philemon, but also for the entire church there, as Paul states in the greeting. And so he writes to them in verses 4 through 6, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. So Philemon opened his home to other believers to form a church, and those believers were actively sharing their faith, which was a huge risk for Christians in that day and time. The first century was an extremely dangerous time to be a Christian. In fact, uh, not only was Paul in prison for his testimony of the gospel when he wrote this letter to Philemon, but church history, uh, as recorded in the Maniah, that's the liturgical book that's used by the, the Eastern Orthodox Church, so it's not biblical scripture, uh, but a historical record nonetheless, that that record claims that during the persecution against Christians under the Emperor Nero, Philemon and others were brought to trial for confessing faith in Christ, and after being severely tortured, they were buried up to their waists in the ground and then stoned to death. That is obviously horrific. And yet these kinds of persecutions did not stop those early surviving Christians from sharing the gospel because there was no virtue or justification for first century followers of Christ in keeping the good news to themselves. And listen, neither is there today. 
despite our feelings about personal privacy in this culture, which is why Jesus commanded his followers in that age and for all the ages to come to share his gospel story with all people everywhere, which he makes clear in Matthew 28. And so, although it is intensely personal, according to Jesus and the apostles, our faith is not a private matter at all. And the reason that is important for us to understand is because Jesus is continually calling his disciples to follow me. He says, you follow me. It's not a one-time call or a temporary call. There is no expiration date on that calling. It is a lifetime commission that we carry from the very first breath of our new life in Christ to the very last on this earth, as we'll see in our story today. And carrying out that calling to follow Jesus Christ demands that we come out from the shadows with our faith and live out the gospel in front of the world, sharing that message in settings and with people that we might otherwise have nothing to do with. There just simply is no version of following Jesus Christ faithfully that allows us to keep that good news to ourselves for the sake of personal privacy. And so this gospel story that we've been studying our way through, the gospel according to John, has all been building to this moment as we've now reached the final chapter. And all of the teaching, all of the miracles, all of the reproof and correction, all of the suffering and all of the struggle and all of the triumph, it has all led to this time and place where Jesus, in his final moments with his followers, utters exactly the same words as he did in his very first moments with them about three years earlier. Follow me. He says to them, you follow me. And then he shows them what that will look like and also what that is going to require of them, which, by the way, hasn't changed in 2,000 years. As we choose to follow him today, our calling and the demands of that calling are the same for us now as they were for those followers then. And, and I'm telling you, the hour is late. Every day that passes is one day closer to the life after this one. So why do we get so hung up on keeping our faith private? I believe it's because we cherish our lives more than we do His which means we prefer ours over his. We prefer ours over others, which has been the human condition, to be honest, ever since the first people were ever created. And Jesus knew that. He knew it well. And so in this final chapter of John's gospel, in a way that only Jesus could, he masterfully leads his disciples to a place where they, where they must confront their own frailty and failures to realize their complete dependence upon him. And then he calls them into a life of utter devotion and sacrifice and world-changing purpose. So let's pick up the story right where we left off last week. It's at chapter 21, and we'll start with the first three verses. This is after at least two instances in the last chapter where the disciples had locked themselves into a room out of fear of being openly associated with Jesus because they valued their own lives more than they did his at that point. Let's read it together, verses one through three. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, 
Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. I just want to pause here and mention that my entire adult life, I have identified in many ways with Peter. <laughs> Loves Jesus, always ready to charge ahead with whatever he thinks is best in the moment, more than willing to take risks, often finds himself in way over his head because he was very impetuous, very impulsive, often gets ahead of himself and God and as a result gets himself into trouble. Sometimes he speaks before he thinks, which almost never turns out well, I can tell you from firsthand experience. And if all of that weren't enough similarity between me and Peter, I read this passage where he takes his friends fishing all night and can't catch a fish to save his life. It's all very familiar territory for me. But at least Peter is trying. He and his companions have traveled back to Galilee because we know from uh, Matthew 28, 10, that after the resurrection, Jesus told Mary Magdalene and the other women who were the first to see him, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So they go to Galilee, and while they're waiting, they decide to go out and try to catch some fish on the Sea of Tiberias, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee. And after an unsuccessful night of trying, Jesus shows up. Let's keep reading verses 4 through 8. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. So Jesus shows up on the shore, and he asks them if they've caught anything, and they don't yet recognize him. Keep in mind that John says in verse 8, Jesus is about a hundred yards away on the shore. That's the length of a football field. And the disciples are on a boat, which is probably not perfectly still on the water. Uh, as well, they've been up all night long, working their nets, trying to catch fish. So they're probably also exhausted. And I can tell you from firsthand experience, when you've been fishing all night and you haven't caught a thing, there's always one guy who shows up just as you're about to quit and go home who wants to know if you've caught anything, which is the last thing that you want to talk about at that moment. And so as far as the disciples are concerned, here is a man yelling at them from 100 yards away wanting to know if they've caught even one fish. And in their weary and probably very frustrated state, they respond to Jesus that they haven't caught anything, to which Jesus replies, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And so they do just that and their nets are then full of large fish. And in that moment, John knows that it is Jesus on the shore, but it's not, it's not because his vision just miraculously improved. He can't see Jesus any better than he could before. It's not, it's not because he was any less tired. And now they're hauling in a load of fish, which means the boat is probably moving even more. I believe John recognized it was Jesus because he and some of the others had experienced this very same miracle before. 
In Luke 5, there's a separate but similar instance where Jesus is in a boat with Peter and some of the others. It says James and John were partners with him there also. And after a long night of fishing, they hadn't caught anything. So Jesus tells Peter to let down his nets into deeper water. And he does. And the nets are then full of fish which is obviously not something that you would ever forget. In fact, Luke says uh, they, including John, were astonished. And so when Jesus tells them here, try the other side of the boat, and then their nets are filled with fish, I don't think they had to see Jesus up close to know that it was him, right? Who, who else could it be but Jesus? And so Peter grabs his outer garment and jumps out of the boat because he cannot wait to get to Jesus. And there's something about this response here that we need to take notice of. In Luke 5, which is before Jesus calls Peter to follow him, when Peter let down his nets according to Jesus' instruction and they were filled, Peter's response to Jesus was, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Luke 5, 8. He wanted distance between him and Jesus which is the universal response of people when they are confronted by a holy God whom they have no relationship with. They want to be far away from him. But in the following moments, Jesus calls Peter to follow him, just as he calls us. He calls Peter to follow him, and Peter does. And so fast forward to this similar event and just look at the difference now. Even as broken as Peter has been, as badly as he has messed everything up, even with all of his failures and mistakes, he knows that he belongs to Jesus now. And so this time, when Jesus performs the same miracle, Peter's response is the exact opposite from before. He doesn't want space between himself and the Messiah. This time he wants to be as close as he can get, as quickly as he can get there. It's a magnificent picture of the confidence and proximity that we can have to God when we have a relationship with Him, even with all of our failures and imperfections. Let's keep reading, verses 9 through 14. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard, and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So the disciples make it back to shore where Jesus has a fire going, and he tells them to bring some of the fish that they just caught. And interestingly, John says that Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them, which means, and most scholars will tell you, that Peter must have been quite imposing uh, physically. He must have been impressively strong to be able to haul in a net of 150 large, 153 large fish by himself. Uh, and of course, I mentioned earlier how much I've identified myself with Peter over the years. I'm just saying. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. This is definitely not one area where I identify with Peter. Not, not at all. I can lucky to get one fish in the boat. Anyway, Peter hauls, uh, hauls in the net full of fish. And Jesus, as he has all along, 
begins to serve his disciples. He builds a fire. He, he cooks a meal of fish and bread and he serves it to them. He's modeling for them in this narrative. He's modeling for them their calling. Back in Matthew 4, verses 18 through 20, when Jesus first calls Peter and Andrew, he said to them, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. And then here in John, he very symbolically demonstrates to them their complete and utter inability to accomplish that calling as they fish all night and catch nothing. But as soon as they obey his voice, as soon as they follow his instructions, his guidance, they catch all that their nets can hold. It is a spectacular, symbolic demonstration of the difference between trying to serve God by our own power and our own abilities and serving him when we're completely dependent upon him. And then he builds a fire and he cooks a meal and he serves them as he has from the beginning. He puts their needs before his own. And John says that none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And the way that he frames that statement makes it sound as if they were in awe of Jesus at this moment, which of course they were. Their entire time with him before the resurrection, they experienced him as a man. Now, of course, he, he told them and showed them who he really was, and they professed their faith in him as the Christ. But then he was murdered before them, wrapped in grave clothes, hauled off and buried in a tomb. So they huddled together in a house with the doors locked, full of fear and doubt. But now, now he's risen from the dead. Now they not only believe that he is the son of the living God, now they're experiencing him as the risen Savior, the Messiah, the one who has conquered even death itself as he sits there, not on a throne in heaven, as he sits there on the shore of Lake Galilee in front of them, cooking them breakfast. Who wouldn't be at a loss for words in that moment? And so simply by his actions, he demonstrates the calling of a true disciple, valuing their lives over our own. And yet as we continue reading, the lesson now becomes much more direct and much more poignant as Peter once again finds himself in the hot seat as he has so many times before. Let's read verses 15 through 19. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So back in verse 9, when they got uh, out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place 
with fish laid out on it and bread. And, and the description of that charcoal fire in that verse in the ancient Greek is the word anthrakia. It's only used twice. Once here and once in chapter 18 when Peter was standing in the high priest's courtyard after Jesus' arrest. Both being instances where Peter himself uh, finds himself at a charcoal fire warming himself under scrutiny by others. It's really hard to ignore the symbolic parallels here as Peter is questioned on both occasions about his relationship to Jesus, previously by servant girls and soldiers, and now by Jesus himself as he asks Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And to fully appreciate Jesus' question here, we have to look back at some of Peter's history. By his words and his actions, he has asserted on several occasions that he will take a stand for Jesus more than anyone else. He said and did those things in front of the other disciples. In effect, Peter was suggesting, if not outright making the claim, many times that he loved Jesus more than anyone else loved Jesus. Back in John chapter 13, when Jesus knew that his hour was at hand, as he was about to go to the cross, he explained that he was leaving and where he was going they could not follow at that time. And as the others remained silent, it was Peter in verse 37 who declared to Jesus, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Matthew 16, 22, as Jesus explains to the disciples that he's going to have to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die, Matthew says that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. In other words, I, Peter, will never allow that to happen to you. In Matthew 26, 31, Jesus said to his disciples, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Then in verse 33, Peter replies, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And of course it was Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane in John 18.10, who drew a sword and cut off the high priest's servant's Malchus's ear as the others stood by and watched. Peter made some bold claims. He'd taken some bold, if not reckless, actions to show Jesus that he loved him more than any of the others loved him. Yet, as we know, when given the opportunity to take a stand for Christ the first time he's not with Jesus or surrounded by his fellow believers, when he's in the high priest's courtyard, surrounded by those hostile to the gospel around a charcoal fire, Peter denies Jesus three times. He doesn't do any of the things that he claimed that he would do for Jesus. And so Jesus, in what must have been a heart-stopping moment for Peter, asks him three times, once for each denial. Simon, do you love me more than these? Meaning, do you still say you love me more than these other men love me? Is that still your line? Are you sticking with that? And then Peter, probably not yet feeling the full weight of Jesus's question, says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And it's interesting, if not telling, that when Jesus asks Peter that question, do you love me, the first two times the word for love that Jesus uses is recorded in the original Greek as the word agapeo or agape, which is the strongest form of the word love in the Greek. It's the highest expression of love in the New Testament. But when Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, he uses a different word for love. In the Greek, it's the word phileo which is generally a weaker form of the word love. It refers to brotherly love. There's some disagreement 
from some scholars as to why these different words are used. With some, some of them make the claim that John was merely using those words in his writing interchangeably for stylistic reasons. So we shouldn't read too much into it. I'm not buying that. I'm not convinced. First of all, I don't think John was that flippant. And secondly, if you continue reading, Jesus asked him a second time, Simon, do you love me? Agapeo. And again, Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Phileo. But the third time, Jesus uses the same word that Peter's been using. So Jesus asked Peter a third time, Simon, do you love me? And this time he uses the word phileo, as if to say, okay, Peter, you're saying that you love me with phileo love. Now I'm asking you a third time, and I'll put it in your own terms. Do you truly love phileo me? And this time, John says Peter was grieved. Why? Because he finally has to face the reality that loving Jesus means more than good intentions. Loving Jesus means more than making bold claims. Loving Jesus means more than standing for him when you're surrounded by other believers. Loving Jesus means following him even when it's hard. It means following him even when we're surrounded by those hostile toward Christ, when all that you want to do in that moment is keep your faith private, just as Peter did when he denied Jesus three times. Now, loving Jesus means loving each other, nourishing and nurturing one another, and ultimately, loving Jesus will cost you everything that you have. And so after telling Peter to feed and tend to his sheep, to take care of his brothers and sisters in Christ three times, Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So Jesus explains to Peter what loving him truly looks like. It's, it's, a, it's living a life of sacrificial love for others, just as he did for us. And then he explains to Peter what the cost of following him will be as he describes Peter's own death. And some 30-plus years later, Peter was martyred at the hands of Nero in Rome. Church history tells us that he was actually crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified in the same manner of his Lord. Clement of Rome mentions Peter's martyrdom around A.D. 96. Uh, Tertullian writes about Peter's crucifixion around A.D. 212 as well. Origen, uh, Eusebius, Peter of Alexandria, they all wrote about the crucifixion of Peter to one degree or another. And so immediately after foretelling Peter's death for doing what Jesus had called him to do, Jesus then issues the exact same calling to Peter that he did when he first met him back in Matthew 4. He says to Peter, Follow me. You follow me. And we'll see him repeat it in just a moment. What an amazing encounter between these two. And of course, Jesus was talking to Peter. But his message to Peter is a message to all of us who claim to love him. Following Jesus isn't something that we turn on and off like a switch whenever it suits us. It's not something we do as long as we're feeling up to it whether it's convenient or not, or whether it's expedient or not to our preferences. Following Jesus should permeate every single aspect of our lives. In truth, we should be consumed 
with following him. Jonathan Edwards said, the seeking of the kingdom of God is the chief business of the Christian life. And so this gospel all builds to this moment where Jesus says, if you're truly going to love me, Peter, then you're going to have to follow me. There is no middle ground. There is no compromise. And there is no keeping it a secret. And by the way, in the end, it's going to cost you everything. And so Peter then responds to all of this in a way that is strikingly relatable to our Western mindset today. Let's keep reading verses 20 through 23. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? He's talking about John here. And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So Jesus says to Peter three times, if you love me, then take care of my people. Because loving me means loving them. And Peter, it's going to require all that you have to give. And in the end, you'll even give your life. Which was nothing new as far as Jesus' teachings were concerned. If, if you'll remember back in chapter 15, verses 12 and 13, Jesus said to these same disciples, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So it's not as if Peter hasn't heard this before, and it's, it's not as if Peter didn't believe it. He professed his faith in Jesus. So when Jesus tells Peter that if you truly love me, you will love your brothers and sisters in Christ, and ultimately you will give your life in doing so, you would think that Peter would say something to the effect of, yeah, I, I got it, Jesus. You said that to us before. I understand. But that's not what Peter does. Peter turns around and looks at John and he says, what about him? In other words, this isn't fair. If I have to give my life up for this calling, what about John? What does he have to give up? And in that one question, Peter exposes not only his own heart, but those of so many Christians throughout the ages. Believers who value their own lives more than we do others. Believers who are more worried about fitting in than we are with following Him. Those who are more concerned with fairness than we are with effectiveness. And those who measure ministry success based on others' successes. But I'm telling you, as the old saying goes, comparison kills. We have to stop worrying about how good our friends have it or how successful our neighbors are or how other believers are reaching or are not reaching the lost because God has called each of us to carry our own cross, not someone else's. In Galatians 6, 4, and 5, the Apostle Paul says, let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor for each will have to bear his own load. And then in 2 Corinthians 10, 12, responding to those in the church who are more concerned about 
comparing their own abilities and spiritual gifts and experience to others than they are about the ministry that God has called them to. Paul says when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Okay? God has called each of us to bear our own load. He's given each of us our own work to do. And I can tell you without hesitation that the criteria for determining what God has given you to do has nothing to do with the work that He has given others to do. You with me? Your calling has been designed for you and assigned to you by God based on the giftings and abilities and experience that He's given you, no one else. And yet there are entire ministries built around the design and success and vision of other ministries in a completely different context. There are churches that are planted based on standardized models because those models have worked for someone else, somewhere else, and for some other reason. Because in our culture, we pant after the world's definition of success, even in the church, to the point that we, we can become consumed with comparison. More worried about what God is doing with someone else than we are excited about what he's doing with us. And Jesus' response to that is simply this. What is that to you? You follow me. We have to stop comparing ourselves and our burdens and our successes and our struggles and our talents and our weaknesses. We have to stop comparing those to others. Simply do what he has called us to do with the giftings and abilities and talents and experience that he's given us uniquely to us. And so, as we finish this gospel account, John makes a final claim that is wonderful. It should truly stir our souls. Let's read verse 24 to the end of the chapter. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written I suppose that the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So after John attests to his own credibility as a witness, which, uh, by the way, was very important in Jewish culture, it was paramount that all testimony about another person or some event came from a credible witness. And in Hebrew culture, there always needed to be two or more witnesses for a testimony to be accepted. And notice John says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So who's we? Well, it's, it's probably safe to assume that he's referring to the apostolic community who witnessed these events and experienced them along with John, but also he's talking about God himself. As everything that has been attested to in this gospel was done in the sight of God. And so in keeping with the requirements for testimony given in the Jewish legal system, John records the existence of other witnesses to this gospel along with himself. And then he says something that is both marvelous and quite thought-provoking. He says, these things that I've written, they're just the tip of the iceberg. I haven't even begun to share the entire story, and I cannot, because not even the entire world can contain this gospel. Which, if you think about it, raises a great question. 
If John, the one whom Jesus loved, the one who was there, the one who saw everything that happened, if he says the entire world cannot contain this gospel, why do we think we can? Why do we think we can be silent when our mission demands a clear and bold proclamation of the truth? Why do we think we shouldn't have to work so hard for the sake of the gospel just because others don't? Why do we think we have the right or the authority to decide whether or not to keep our faith private? Jesus didn't say, follow me like your friends are following me. He didn't say, follow me like your parents are following me. He didn't say, follow me like the culture around you tells you to. No, Jesus said, what is it to you what anyone else is doing? I have called you to follow me regardless of what anyone else around you says or does. You just follow me. And how do I do that? Well, you love others like Jesus loves you by sharing your faith with them, by not keeping it private. You tend to others. You feed them spiritually and physically if need be. You lay your very life down for them by loving them like he loves you, sacrificially, inconveniently, unceasingly, and unconditionally. And then he says, forget about what anyone else says or does. You follow me. Let's pray.